Welcome to Most Popular, the podcast that I started for you all, my sociology students, but if I'm being honest, it's also mostly for my entertainment. Uh, Today we are going to have a, I like to think of this as a, a very special episode. And some of you, I know I said this in a few other podcasts, some of you may remember this, some of you may, your only reference might be like Lifetime movies or something, but in the 80s and 90s, when a television show wanted to make a point, and that point was like, usually had something to do with drugs because of Nancy Reagan's Just Say No to Drugs campaign that was a big deal at that time, they would switch to what is called a very special episode, and the tone would get real serious, and everyone would suddenly become dramatic actors in comedy shows, and people would address something that the country thought needed to be addressed. So like I said, most of the time it was drugs. I do remember an episode of this show called um, uh, Family Ties where they talked about birth control. Um, Today we're having our own very special episode. Uh, We're going to talk about technology. Um, This is a project I've been working on for a while that is one of a few new podcasts that I've put together for you all with various experts. We're going to talk about technology and how it is situated in our society and in our culture and what impact it has on us. And we're going to take a few different perspectives on it. So you're going to hear the voices of, I guess, five people, including myself, uh, four experts that I have contacted, worked with, and um, have interviewed to sort of show us the snake-like trail that technology has, where it just sort of has interwoven. Actually, a basket weaving is probably a better analogy. It's sort of woven its way into all of our lives and experiences. Um, For those of you who are in my face-to-face classes, you know that I like to start class by saying, what social media accounts do you follow that you really enjoy? Uh, Because that's a common question now that we can ask each other. Like, what social media accounts do you like? So you're going to hear from four folks today. Um, uh, The first is Dr. Lee Paulson, who is on the Project Kuiper at Amazon. I'm going to let him explain what Project Kuiper is, but he's going to give us kind of the the behind the scenes on what technology is, what, how we sort of have gotten to this point with uh, Wi-Fi, what Wi-Fi actually means and what it stands for. Uh, Lee, I like to say, is an expert in antennas, which I think he would agree with, um, and can kind of give us the bare bones idea of how all of these things became so much a part of our lives. Next, I'm going to talk to Dr. Deborah Lupton. Uh, Dr. Lupton, she is at the University of New South Wales in Sydney, Australia. She's a professor in the Center for Social Research in Health. Her uh, experience is in what's called digital culture and how culture and uh, technology have become very intertwined. She also has a lot of experience talking about how digital culture is nested in health. Um, So we talk a little bit about COVID and how people, especially on social media, sort of grabbed onto all sorts of stuff surrounding COVID. Um, But she's going to give us kind of a basic idea of how culture has become digital what that means and what it means for a society to now be very reliant on the internet and all of its uh, good and bad up and down ins and outs. 
Next, I'm going to talk to Dr. Trisha Charles and Dr. Doug Charles. So Trisha and Doug are married. Uh, Trisha is the Director of Equal Opportunity in Organizational Development here at Valencia, and Doug is Sociology Faculty at Hillsborough Community College over in Tampa. So the two of them, uh, like I said, are married, and they study... I'm going to say the dark corners of the internet are their expertise. Um, Trisha looks at uh, cyberstalking and um, the way the internet is used for uh, not just the internet, but apps and phones and all sorts of tech are used for uh, uh, tracking people. And um, Doug has looked at hate groups through YouTube. So their dinners conversations are super fun on Saturday nights in their house. (laughs) Uh, And that'll be... The, com- the the folks that we're going to talk to. I'll interject a little bit here and there, um, but for the most part, I just want you to uh, hear what these people have to say about technology and society. So we're going to get started with Dr. Lee Paulson, who, as I mentioned, is on Project Kuiper at Amazon, and I will let him explain what that means. Um, I want to give the caveat that Lee and I are friends. We have known each other since we were five, and um, I got to say, If you someday ever need to make podcasts for your students as part of a project and you want to talk about technology, it really helps to make those friends when you're five because your research will be so much easier. (laughs) Um, I'm really excited to have have him as part of this. It's awesome when you get to include people that you've known your whole life in stuff that you're doing. And um, he's a cool person. And uh, he doesn't mention it, but he is really into Frisbee golf. So if you have any questions about Frisbee golf, let me know. I'll pass them along. Here we go. So you know how I've been watching all of those Agatha Christie movies from the 50s? Yes. So the one that I just finished, Witness for the Prosecution, all the lawyers in it have to introduce each other as my learned friend. (laughs) (laughs) I think we should adopt that. (laughs) Okay. Okay. So my learned friend, please. Introduce yourself, say your name, et cetera, et cetera. Sure. So I'm Lee Paulson. Uh, on a professional level, I work for Amazon Project Kuiper. Uh, I'm responsible for development of customer terminal hardware, uh, meaning all of the little devices that people eventually buy and have in their homes to be able to connect to the Kuiper network uh, and, and you know, sort of bring internet all over the world. My team's responsible for sort of bringing that to life and putting it into mass production, primarily function in, in an engineering leadership role. Uh, and your PhD a- is in? And I have a PhD in uh, electromagnetics. So okay. antenna theory. Antennas and antenna theory. Is that better? No, that, yeah, no. Oh, okay. I, Not everybody knows what electromagnetics is. So we'll say antennas. I only know because I know you. Yeah. So, so that said, we, we know each other. <laughs> <laughs> We've known each other since the age of five, the best of my recollection. Yes. And we are, goodness, only 22. Can you imagine? Like we look so young. <laughs> accomplished for our ages. (laughs) That's a lie. We both just had birthdays. We're in our forties. At a real basic level, what is Wi-Fi? So on a real basic level, Wi-Fi is a radio communication protocol that allows two devices to communicate over a span, right? And it's Mm -hmm. typically in one of like three different controlled frequency bands, uh, but it's designed to be able to reliably send data to and from devices wirelessly. And unlike Unlike something like a cellular, like LTE, uh, like 4G or 5G, 
uh, Wi-Fi is typically designed to be fairly short range, right? It's, it's, it's really meant for um, in building, in house, you know, maybe, maybe in a neighborhood sort of use, use cases. And it's different from something like Bluetooth, which is meant to be super, super short range, um, right? Your Bluetooth, well, you don't have earbuds in, but if you have Bluetooth earbuds, they typically don't work more than, you know, 20, 30 meters away, right? And that's like a really good mm -hmm. Bluetooth, right, connections. Um, so Wi-Fi is really meant to go a little longer range than that, but not nearly as far as um, uh, cellular connections. One of the beautiful things about Wi-Fi is because it's kind of set in that middle range, um, it allows people to use these open frequencies that are largely uncontrolled, so that without fear of interference. Um, and then it, it, it sort of lets everybody have their own little bubble of connectivity that can be repeated over and over and over again. So how do you explain the difference between Wi-Fi and cellular service other than shorter range? Is that, is that the difference? So the frequency allocations are different, but a lot of times the waveforms are very similar that they use, like the actual protocol they use to communicate is, is, is fairly similar. Um, I would say I would say range is probably the, the main thing. The other the other piece that's a little bit different is, um, well, until recently, this is becoming less true. Uh, cellular connectivity for a long time was built around the idea of direct line of sight or near line of sight connectivity. So if you have your cell phone, there's some sort of a direct path that a signal that can propagate from your phone will directly go to a tower. Right. Um, inside of your home, that's almost impossible to have antennas in enough places that you always have line of sight to like your uh, tablet, right, or a, or a laptop or, or your phone on Wi-Fi. So they use a technique called MIMO, which is multi multiple in, multiple out, I think is what it stands for. But the idea basically is you have multiple antennas and you sort of uh, weight the signals between the antennas in a way to get the maximum throughput from wherever the Wi-Fi host is to the client, right? Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's all about managing what's called multipath. So the signals will bounce off the walls and refract through the windows. And some of it will be line of sight, but the idea is that we want to give you a good experience. So you get good solid data rates and things don't drop as you're moving around your house. Do you remember, I know this is a tough question because memory is a dicey situation for both of us oh, at this point. Yeah. But do you remember on US 10, that video store that was there for a long time? And it was like a, not a family video, but like a little mom and pop video rental place. It was like, yes. so my yes. parents took me in there once and I must've been eight or nine. And this was before everyone had printers and, you know, somebody had handwritten in green marker and labeled the sci-fi section. And I called it skifi because I was a kid, <laughs> right? And I thought, oh, it's skifi. And I have the same, every time I see Wi-Fi, I think of Skifi because I think, oh, Wi-Fi. <laughs> yep. <laughs> that's the connection in my brain. So there's a new digital protocol that's being developed largely on the military side called DiFi. Uh, it stands oh, God, for, that would kill me. <laughs> yeah, digital <laughs> IF interface. And uh, half the people call it Diffy and half the people call it DiFi. <laughs> <laughs> like... So why is it more difficult for, because I'm going to, talk about rural communities in a second, but why is it more difficult for areas to get internet than other areas, quality sure. internet? So the piece that you have to you have to visualize when you think about connectivity is, um, imagine for a moment that your cell phone was a hotspot, right? And you were connected to your laptop, from your laptop via Wi-Fi to your cell phone as a hotspot, and then that connects back to a cell phone tower, right? Mm -hmm. So now the question becomes, where does the cell phone go from there? Mm -hmm. 
because ultimately you're just connecting to a server somewhere that's effectively what we call like a point of presence in the internet. So most cell phone towers have one of two, soon to be three different forms of communication from the cell phone tower back to the next node in the network, right? That eventually works its way back to some sort of a big server farm. Um, they either have fiber optic cable that run off them, um, which fiber optic cable is extremely fast, right? You can, you can get many, many gigabits of speed through a, a standard fiber optic cable. That's what you said. I don't know what the limit is. Um, you know, it's, it's hundreds of gigs to the best of my knowledge. Right. Modern uh, fiber optic communication systems. Uh, or they use a system called microwave backhaul. Uh, so what you'll see there is you'll have a large uh, drum looking thing on the side of, an, uh, side of a tower that's just aimed off in a direction. What it's actually doing is performing its own point to point microwave wireless link, mm -hmm. right? That's also, it's not nearly as fast as fiber, but it doesn't require you to dig a trench and actually lay fiber cable. Um, that's pretty popular in parts of the world where it's either impractical to dig trenches. Like if you look at uh, cell phone towers around like Los Angeles, Mm -hmm. They're all up on the ridge, right? That right. kind of surrounds like the bowl that surrounds the, the rim of the bowl. And um, they all have my, uh, microwave backhaul repeaters between them because it's a pain in the ass to dig trenches in rock, right? Mm -hmm. um, and then the third one that people are starting to use is satellite. So it's extremely expensive to take fiber to a neighborhood. Mm -hmm. And every business, because it's almost exclusively uh, private industry that's doing this, has to be able to justify the cost of doing that based on the amount of profit they're gonna make off you, right? Wait, can I, can I ask a question? Yeah. Um, so when you say private business, that would be like, like here we have Spectrum or right. like those types of places that provide internet service. Correct, yeah. Okay. I shouldn't say private business because they're often publicly traded companies, right? But right. they're, they're, they're for-profit institutions. Right, they're companies that are, their sole job is to provide yeah, exactly. internet, like we're talking right now through an Xfinity connection because I have, I think they, I think it's actually Comcast, but they rebranded themselves as Xfinity, right? Right. So my neighborhood now has Xfinity uh, because there happens to be fiber running along the highway that's not too far from my house. And so I'm able to get, I think it's like 800 megabit per second internet, right? Right. That is only possible because there's a fiber trunk line running sort of near my neighborhood. Once upon a time, Xfinity uh, or Comcast made the decision to lay all this fiber and plumb out the network and decided that it was worth it. It was in their business interest to put all the repeaters in place and lay the, you know, lay the fiber because uh, they can make whatever I pay. I don't know, a hundred bucks a month for internet. Their estimation of their business case was it's worth it to do this. We'll make good margins. It'll be a profitable business. By contrast, at my old house where I used to live in Iowa. My so we should say you're in Seattle right now. I should say that. Yes, I yeah. am in Seattle. And uh, by contrast, where I used to live in Iowa, I was the first house in the county at the edge of the town of Cedar Rapids. The town of Cedar Rapids had reasonable internet. Uh, my neighbors had cable, well, they cable internet. It wasn't, it wasn't fiber-based uh, through Mediacom. Mediacom had struck a deal with the city at some point in the past to run uh, cable, right? To be able to distribute TV and eventually uh, internet all throughout the city. Um, I don't know the nature of the the deal, but it's not uncommon. Most municipalities will will you know cut some sort of a deal that they get tax breaks if people are willing to run cable uh, all over their city, so their citizens have you know TV and internet. My house was the first house in the county, and because of that, the tax whatever deal they had with the city of Cedar Rapids stopped at the edge of the city boundary. So I called MediaCom and asked them, "Can you run cable to my house?" And they basically said, "Well, we'll think about it." They eventually had a. You've told survey. me this, yeah. <laughs> yeah. They had a survey crew come out, 
Yeah. And they said, no, it's impossible because there's a cornfield between you and mm -hmm. and the, the neighbor's house. Right. And I, I explained to them very carefully, like, I own that cornfield. I will give you permission to dig a trench. And they said, nope, it's impossible. We can't do it. So if they were going to dig a trench and lay out this network, they would probably prefer to lay fiber because it's just more sort of efficient, right? And they can deliver more to more people. Um, but in every one of these cases, the industry or the business that is choosing to run the cable or the fiber or the, the sort of the, the fabric out to people's neighborhoods has to have enough customers at the end of that to be able to make it worth their time. So we're both living in a place now where internet and Wi-Fi is not a problem, but we come from a very rural part of Northern Michigan where like it is, <laughs> like there's no other way to put it. it. It is like where our parents are, they're not, there's nothing unless yep. you wanna pay for, um, like you're talking about the satellite on your roof, but even then the signal may not, am I saying this right? The signal may not be good enough to give you any sort of Wi-Fi, especially in the woods. Here's how I see your world and my world in mm -hmm. connection. So you doing um, antennas and me doing inequality and, and society. And you can tell me how, if any of this doesn't sound right to you, because I just did like a real quick search and looked at how many places don't have internet access in the US. And the FCC has 19 million people don't have quality internet, which I interpret that as like internet that is good. Like it actually uploads stuff. You can zoom on it. You can email a file bigger than like one page of a doc. Like, is that close? I think that's right. I, I, am, I, I think the definitions for broadband have changed a little bit in the last couple of years. Yeah. Uh, once upon a time, it was like 30 megabits per second down and five to 10 megabits per second up. I think they right, changed. Right. So it's like a minimum of hundred megabits per second down and 20 megabits per second up. Okay, so they also think that around 44 million don't have access to broadband, which is what you're talking about. Yep. And um, in rural areas, it's like a quarter of the population don't have access to internet or quality internet. So here's how I see our fields connecting. I feel like mine has sort of rung the bell on the problem and yours is like, how can we fix it? Yeah, I think that's fair. Is that fair? Mm -hmm. Because here's how I see it internet in rural communities and in places where people can't maybe afford it or maybe just don't have access to it, that it's not so much anymore like a, I know you've said this, but it, it's not so much anymore like a nice thing to have as it is a necessity for people. My thinking is as sort of the digital economy has developed, right, to some degree, just forget about education for a moment. Sorry, I know you're a professor, but put no, education I think you're right. for a moment and think about yeah. people, how people sort of make a living right? Um, as people have found ways to create value and new products in the digital economy, more and more of the economy is moving in that direction. It's not everyone's jobs. It's not everything, um, uh, you know, the totality of it. But a lot of the ways we interact with businesses, we, we interact with government, we interact with our friends, we interact with our communities, all happens online. As the people who have the haves in this digital ecosystem um, have been able to take advantage of that, and society has grown and flourished, I think, because of it, I think society is actually generally better off having connectivity than not. You and I wouldn't be talking, mm -hmm. right? If connectivity didn't exist. The, there's a whole group of have-nots that have been sort of left behind. And it's almost like we talk about the people who, uh, the communities and the societies that were sort of left behind or lost or disadvantaged by globalization. 
mm -hmm. right? Where we sort of globalize the economy. Uh, I think the same thing is sort of happening where you say there are people who are being left behind uh, and disadvantaged because they don't have connectivity. And more often than not, it's because they live in a particular region of the US if you're in the States where there isn't enough population density to justify pushing connectivity to that location. Mm -hmm. Or globally, they don't have enough money yet to be able to justify right, to, for a company to be able to bring connectivity to them, right? And this is this is what we typically refer to as the digital divide. We do too. Device. You do too? Okay, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> thing, right? It's not an uncommon thing to hear. Uh, there's a billion people who lack connectivity, right? <laughs> it's a bigger problem than any, any of us can solve. But I mean, it's an infrastructure problem too in a, in a lot of ways, problem. you yes. know? Yes. That it's it's an infrastructure problem that we've kind of put on ourselves, uh -huh. the royal we. Um, <clears throat> the other thing I like to think about, it's it's easy to find in the U.S., especially for folks in rural communities like where our parents still live, or here if I drive east, mm -hmm. I don't know, 20 minutes, right? I, I will find people who live in, right. in the mountains. There's mountain communities there, and people want to live there, but it's very difficult to make a living that they have almost no opportunity to be, you know, a software engineer, for example, right? Or do something online because uh, they have no connectivity. And that is slowly starting to change. You can see SpaceX systems that people have at their houses where they're using Starlink. Um, but those are just kind of just barely getting going. The thing I like to think about is as the rest of society is moving forward and people are getting jobs that re rely on digital connectivity, those other communities are sort of left, they're disadvantaged. They don't have the opportunity to go participate in the, that part of the economy. Right. Right. My parents obviously aren't in a position where they would want to, you know, get a job. But that's generation. But that's an also a really important point, too, because part of the digital divide is like the older people are or the less education they have, the more likely they are to not be interested in Internet or in any sort of tech because they don't see how it's going to affect them or they just don't have the ability to do it so it's it's an important thing to mention other folks who live there especially in the rural areas of the rural area that we grew up that they, they they it's difficult for them to justify staying to some degree right. because they, it's like okay um, unless you happen to live in an area that has um, a lot of uh, job opportunities that require you to physically be there mm -hmm. at which point you probably have connectivity <laughs> Right. Well, yeah, but it, it, it's why population becomes stagnant in those places. Yeah, exactly. Or goes down even. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So my, my, my thinking and kind of my personal motivation is uh, with what I've, I've been doing, I've been working on trying to solve this problem for the better part of 10 years now. I just want to give people access so they can make their own choices, right? I'm not saying anyone who has connectivity needs to participate in the digital economy necessarily and get like a software engineering job. I don't care. People can do whatever they want. But they mm -hmm. shouldn't be forced to move to a, you know, a high population center because they can't mm -hmm. connect, right. right? They shouldn't necessarily have this extra burden of, well, I can't connect to the sort of, you know, the digital ecosystem and I can't participate in the economy that way. So next I'm going to talk to Dr. Deborah Lupton. And uh, what I'm really excited for you all to hear about is how she explains what digital culture is and uh, kind of in the sense of what... Dr. Paulson was saying technology should be used in some way to help people um, because it has become so entrenched in our lives. And I think we all experienced this, especially at the beginning of the pandemic, especially at the beginning of the pandemic, and especially for those of you who may have been struggling to try and get access to Wi-Fi or try to get any sort of internet 
um, excess going, whether through your phones or whatever. Dr. Lupton is really going to walk us through how digital technology, digital sociology is what she's going to call a social practice. Yeah, so digital culture and digital sociology are intertwined concepts, but one has culture and one has sociology in the title. (laughs) But sociology is all, all about the cultural dimensions of people's lives and the social encounters that they have. I, I guess I would say that digital sociology encompasses digital culture, so it's a broader concept than digital culture. Um, and digital sociology, as I define it, is about how we understand people's use of digital technologies, devices and software as a social practice. And so social group membership is a very important dimension of of how people use digital technologies, whether it's gender, age group, their economic status, their education levels, um, their um, occupation, whether they're unemployed, (laughs) what part of the world they live in, whether they live in a privileged, wealthy country, and even within that, in that country that they live in, if they happen to live in a privileged, wealthy country, uh, whether they're in a part of that country that, that doesn't have very good uh, access to technology, such as Wi-Fi or phone services. And I come from a, a wealthy country, Australia, um, but there are, it's a very large country, like the US, mm-hmm. <laughs> geographically, um, and we have a huge diversity across the continent. We have a far um, smaller population than the US, much, much smaller. We only have 26 million people in, in Australia, and we're pretty much spread out amongst the, the fringes of the continent and the people who live inland uh, in rural and re- remote communities often, even in this day and age, in a wealthy country like Australia, struggle with having good phone service or with Wi-Fi. For me, digital culture is, is part of that as well. So we might look at the, the cultural dimensions of, of digital media use, for example, how it is that people use social media and the cultures of sort of sharing and communicating and commenting. Um, Those, when we use the word culture there, we're talking about um, accepted norms of behavior, but we're also talking about that we're all culturated into as we grow up in a certain social context, that's culture. But we're also talking about the materializations of culture, the images, the way that we um, make images to share on social media, um, the way that certain social media platforms are different in the types of images that are created and shared. So we know that the culture of Instagram has a very different visual culture, uh, much more polished culture um, compared with TikTok, which is very much about um, very quick videos, very casual videos that that may well be well rehearsed but they're often (laughs) the the culture is that they don't look as if they're super well rehearsed they're much more sort of casual whereas Instagram has that much more polished you know visual aesthetics of um, you know beautiful environments or beautiful bodies or beautiful food um, Mm -hmm. which is a really strong aspect of of um, you know just comparing those just those two different social media platforms so of um of digital sociology in in those are the sorts of things that we look at when we're um, trying to understand the the cultures and social meanings and social practices around digital technology use you have you heard of celeste barber and her instagram uh no 
No, I haven't. Um, she takes, she's a comedian, she's Australian. She takes uh, the very photoshopped, very prepared images that people post on Instagram and then juxtaposes them with herself trying to recreate them and makes very, very funny videos and images um, from it. You know, just a normal person trying to do these things that these abnormal pictures are huh? trying to yeah. sell. And yeah, she so also- that's a good, it's a good way of highlighting, you know, highlighting those cultures is by making fun of them, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. She got in trouble, not in trouble. She she got into an argument on Instagram with Instagram, the company, because a model had posted a picture of herself wearing nothing and Celeste Barber replicated it, like did the same thing. And Instagram labeled her image as um, inappropriate and took it down and kept up this model's image. Mm-hmm. So it's a very interesting, as a sociologist, you can't turn that part off in your brain, obviously, but it's very interesting to watch it play out with how she picks and chooses and then how the platform reacts to the normal person posting these pictures versus the very created image, the curated image, yeah. I guess I should well, say. An- another good example is the controversy around um, women who are breastfeeding their babies and mm-hmm. photos of them doing a very natural and, you know, very mm-hmm. maternal and caring um, thing with their infants and um, Facebook uh, censoring it because it has this sort of automated algorithms looking at sort of flesh-coloured material um, and deciding there's too much flesh there and, you know, and the whole debate about, you know, a female nipple female appearing nipple versus a male appearing nipple and how, <laughs> how how sort of algorithms can decide what's a male appearing nipple versus a female appearing nipple because of course it's, you know you just can't have the female nipples but apparently male nipples are fine so I mean that, that really again underpins the cultures of of what's considered acceptable or you know so one of the things I really enjoyed about your book chapter two I really connected to um, and you started a sentence by saying the internet is a living archive. And I'm wondering if you could expand on what you mean by that. If And if everything does live forever, what does that say about digital cultures? Not everything does live forever. So we have seen, even over the last 10 years, we've seen social media platforms come and go. Some of them have disappeared or sort of, con- you know, content aggregation websites um, have disappeared. Even some of the ones I, I mentioned in, we're now seeing Twitter sort of seem to, under under your mar- marvellous Elon Musk, um, <laughs> basically disintegrating in real time. And, and many of us on Twitter are just basically wondering how long Twitter's got to go. <laughs> and there's, you know, all people, are, some people are downloading their tweet, their archives as tweets. Uh, I'm not sure why, to be honest. I, I don't really need to look at my archive of tweets, but some people <laughs> seem to think it's important. Because it could well be that um, all that material, all those mailing, probably billions now of tweets that Twitter members have um, tweeted out over the past 10 years or so, could could well vanish. So, I mean, the living archive uh, metaphor also relates to my concept of, of lively data. And that's mm-hmm. where I'm in some of my later books, like The Quantified Self, I wrote a book about self-tracking practices acknowledges that digital data about us um, through our engagements with um, apps, wearable devices, mobile devices and um, browsers and online 
practices. Um, you know, every time we go, go on most apps, go on social media platforms, go on browsers, walk around with self-tracking devices, measuring our body's functions and steps and movements in space. You know, there are reams and reams of digital data, information about us being generated by those devices and, and software. Um, those then go up to the cloud computing um, and archives yep. um, that, that, are, that are owned for the most part by third parties, by the app developers or the software developers or the device developers and have become, I call them lively because they're constantly, this data, these digitised forms of information are constantly being generated by us. So they're lively in that way. They're just constant streams of it and flows of them. But they're lively in another way in that they are being used for people's livelihoods. They're economic. They have economic benefits for third parties who, who um, exploit our data um, for their own purposes, to sell them, um, to harvest them, to manipulate them, use them for advertising purposes. And they're lively in another way in that if we do get access to our own digital data, say on a self-tracking app, you know, if you're a runner or a cyclist and you're interested in monitoring your um, progress, fitness progress, then they're lively in that they're about our lives and about our health, and about our bodies, and we can use those data to make, maybe make changes in our lives or to yeah. feel better about ourselves. So there's different ways in which these data are lively. So if we then take that metaphor of lively data and go back to that initial metaphor of the lively, you know, the living archive that you mentioned, mm -hmm. then um, really they're, they're interrelated because the archive is the archive of these lively data that are constant. They're constantly changing. I mean, every time something yeah. about our bodies or our cells or our social relationships is being rendered into digital information, digital data, it's old data because next time we say something or take a photo or move in space and place and time, that's the new data. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, so in that way, there are archives of old information that can only ever be from the past. So now that we've heard about what Wi-Fi is, how it, where it comes from, the issues that people have with the internet, getting Wi-Fi, what sociology of digital culture is and how the internet is um, something that is constantly uh, evolving, and uh, I'd like to end. I'd like to begin where Dr. Lupton led off with the idea of tracking, which is my transition into uh, Dr. Trisha Charles and Dr. Doug Charles. As I mentioned, they are married, and we are going to talk about some of the darker corners of the internet and what happens when you have all of this great stuff coming in. You have Wi-Fi. You have the ability to connect all of the time. And then you also have these cultures being created. What does that mean when things turn dark? Um, so I wrote the introduction for this this morning and I said, you know, these two are married and um, I'm very excited to ask you, like, what do you guys talk about over dinner since one of you looks at cybercrime? <laughs> <laughs> looks at hate groups. <laughs> So, you know, I, I'm like, in my head, you two have like videos of bunnies playing, like, <laughs> or like unlikely animal pairings, or like farm animals doing fun things. Like, there's got to be a way that you two are balancing out meals. This is reality, <laughs> trash reality TV. Yeah. <laughs> it really is trash reality dating show. Yeah. Um, Trisha, I want to start with you. And then Doug, I'll ask you a few things. Um, because since, like I was saying, her name was Deborah Lupton, who I talked to, and she uh, was talking about 
tracking devices and how like everything we do now is tracked from like when you have a heart rate monitor and and all of that so in that same vein you have quite a bit of experience and people using apps to track themselves or other folks so can you just real briefly like explain what cyber stalking is what it means yeah so it's really just using any form of technology to to target or harass or track or follow or threaten uh, another person what we've seen is people using different kinds of apps for things like like tracking so apps that are created for for parents to be able to monitor their children to make sure that they're safe and that they're not talking to strangers that they're not going places that they they're not supposed to but what ends up being used is uh people using them for following their partners or you know people that they're dating installing mm -hmm. it on their their phones without them knowing that it's even there because they run in the background so they're their secret um, and what they'll do is they'll send location data and keystroke data, uh, sometimes photos and text messages. And so they'll actually send all of that to the person and they can see like who they're texting, who they're talking to, uh, what their keystroke data is. So there'll be passwords to, you know, log into stuff and be able to kind of find their, their location that way and actually show up or just be able to track what they're doing. And those apps are all made with good intentions because they're for parents really, but they're, then they get used for that. Um, we've seen tracking devices being installed on, on vehicles to be able to follow somebody at uh, different places. Um, we also see a lot of spoofing. Mm -hmm. So using uh, different apps for changing somebody's phone number so that you know, say, Adrian, you were to block my number because I was calling you too much, I'd be able to spoof a number where I can make it look like it's coming from somebody that you know, or coming from the pool. Yeah, you've done that trick with me. You've done that trick with me where it's like, the app will say like, like, this is Trisha calling, and then it'll be somebody completely different on the other end of the phone. But if I'm just texting with you, I don't know that that's what's going on. I think I'm just talking to you and not whomever has you has taken my information and is texting with me. Yep, with the yeah, with the spoofing because you can do it for text messages too. You'll have no idea that it's coming. It will because it's coming from technically the same phone number. It will typically throw show up in like the same thread of numbers. And you'll have and you'll have no idea that it's coming from them because you can use those apps to actually use the, the change the phone number but it's also a way to get around blocking like I said so um if you were if you know if you were to block me this actually gets around it because the phone carrier doesn't recognize that that's a number that's been blocked because it doesn't show up as that so I can call you and it shows up as as a parent and it's actually me <laughs> how does that work with um can you talk a little bit about like the law the legal part of it like it is there enough stuff that can be done to someone if they get caught doing that? Like, is the is the law clear on it? It's really tough because for spoofing in particular, uh, it's only considered a crime if it's used to cause harm, which is really oh. difficult to, to prove if somebody's just kind of bugging somebody a little bit. Like, is that causing causing harm? You know, even with the stalking cases that I looked at for my my dissertation, we really didn't see a lot that went all the way because it was really difficult for them to prove that it met the threshold under the law of 
causing the level of fear in somebody that it needed. So they, the victims really needed to have pretty significant documentation about how often it was happening, how it was impacting them, that they took some sort of action to prevent it from happening again. So they got an injunction, they called the police, they tried to block them, they told them, don't ever contact me again. Those sorts of things uh, played a role in whether or not it was seen as um, causing the level of fear that they needed for a case to move forward. But the stalking cases, for the most part, they just really didn't go anywhere. And then we would see it escalate into something else. So we'd follow the cases and see, you know, they didn't do anything when it was stalking, they dropped that case, but oh, look, now we have assault. Uh, yeah. Turned into something a little bit more serious. So we've definitely seen them progress because stalking is very difficult to prove in terms of the impact because the, the threshold is pretty high for the legal piece of it. And, you know, convincing a jury that, you know, calling somebody a bunch of times caused them to fear for their lives, especially if they're out of the area. Right. Mm -hmm. If they're not doing the in-person behaviors and they're only doing the virtual, are they convinced that that person's going to show up at your house? Right. If it's somebody in another state, um, mm -hmm. are they really a threat to you? And then the state thing legally brings up an issue with jurisdiction mm -hmm. because the different states have different laws in terms of whose jurisdiction is. Is it the is it the victim or is it the offender? And sometimes they don't align. Uh, sometimes it ends up being nobody's because the two conflict. Um, so when it comes to the online aspect with the legalities, especially if it's out different states, uh, you really see some challenges because there's just not the, the perception that that person actually poses a threat to them. So Doug, <clears throat> you also study a fun topic. You look at hate groups. Yeah, yeah. Specifically, um, my most recent research was on white supremacist groups online, particularly on the, uh, the platform YouTube. I started with altright.com uh, YouTube channel, which is run by Richard Spencer, pretty well known um, yeah, for his role in that movement. Um, and I essentially just followed what the platform recommended. So I start with that channel and then see what it recommended and kind of worked my way out as a web. I had a set of criteria um, that would, I basically would use to identify, does this have white supremacist content in it? And the way I would try to identify the content was I would watch the video, uh, transcribe everything they said. What were they saying? What were they talking about? Some of them would just kind of focus, they would kind of just be like online uh, pundits almost, you know, mm -hmm. kind of going through the news that day, um, talking about issues, um, framing them um, through their movement of white power or uh, most commonly, I mean, usually their angle is more white victimhood, right? Like how are whites being attacked in society? um conspiracy monitoring things like that for the most part my favorite that you showed me was the pumpkin spice creamer one. Oh, that was bizarre yeah yeah what is so that one of them was instructions on how to make your own pumpkin spice creamer and he sent it to me i'm like why am i watching this video on how to make pumpkin spice creamer and then they start going into like oh and if you learn how to make your own then you don't have to give your money to organizations that may have different beliefs than you do and they start kind of going into, you know, how you might not want to support some of those companies because they're, you know, pro some, yeah. you know, issues that they are not. You're like, wow, I thought I was just learning how to make creamer and here we are in white supremacist land. And then the next video would be a little bit more. Yeah, they mentioned things like you don't know what chemicals they're putting in there. They're trying to reduce the fertility rate of certain races. You know, it would kind of go into all sorts of conspiracies. 
Yeah. But that's how they get people to watch, right? Like they find something fairly innocuous or even funny. It, it reminds like for the, the white supremacy, like I think your average person, what they have in their head is like the idea of the white supremacist, right? Like the skinhead, the dude with mm-hmm. the hood, um, the iron cross or Nazi memorabilia. But when you click on one of these videos, these channels are just somebody standing, sitting in front of a webcam and they're going to tell you something that's just the truth, all right? Other people aren't going to get into this. We're not doing political correctness here. Uh, I'm just going to be honest with you about stuff, you know, and, and that's that's appealing. People want to hear people that are filtered off, right? They feel like they're getting some sort of authentic interaction online. It's also manipulative language too, right? Like the rhetoric is all there and you can trace it. Absolutely, yeah. And, and that was a lot of the what I was looking into was framing and rhetoric. Um, mm-hmm. How do they talk about issues, particularly white supremacists? Um, and there's just kind of recurring themes, you know, first one being this kind of impending doom uh, mm-hmm. that you'd see in this political movement. We're always on like the brink of something really, really, really bad happening. You know, the extinction of a race or, um, you know, the collapse of society or something like that is always being brought up. You've got other things like the appropriation, I like to call it appropriation of victimhood. So kind of using the language in terms of social justice, but instead um, putting in dominant groups. So uh, straight folks or white Mm -hmm. men uh, or the nuclear family, all these things under attack, being oppressed. So tough because the internet allows for so much, like you can be anonymous, you you can be your real self, you can kind of create your own identity, show people, whatever side of you, you know, you want them to see, uh, but you can really hide a lot of things. Like you could make a YouTube channel without using your real information, right? You mm-hmm. can be a, a fake person and you can create videos that don't actually use, you know, your likeness and create cartoons and still say all of these hateful things and get people riled up in different ways and try to instigate things without it even really being able to be tied back to a specific person. So there's so much that they can do to kind of rile people up in different ways. Same with, you know, Twitter, you can, you're just a username, right? You don't have to necessarily use your identity unless you want that blue check mark that you Mm -hmm. can now. Um, You can just pay for it now. Yeah. (laughs) um, So it's tough, you know, they are private businesses. So to some extent, I think not only should they be responsible in you know, some ways they have to I think take their ownership for any sort of harm that they're causing we won't probably see that really happening unless they're held accountable for things that are that happen as a result of stuff that's shared on their platforms the companies themselves were to be held accountable for you know things that occur because they were planned using their 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 services I, I know there's a lot of discussion around like does deplatforming do anything is it better to have these organizations out in the open these folks out in the open I will tell you from hearing what they say and from tracking their influence um, deplatforming does hit them really hard when I first started looking into these groups they were using platforms like YouTube patreon, um, to break in immense amounts of cash. I mean, we're yeah. talking like channels with 400,000 subscribers getting donations all the time. They were getting ad revenue. And when YouTube realized that their ad, their ad providers were pulling the content because they didn't want, you know, their car to appear right before some guy ranting about 
how the Holocaust wasn't real. They started to crack down on channels that did this. Thank you so much for listening. You can find more episodes of Most Popular on iTunes and SoundCloud. More information, including additional resources for educators, can be found on my website, which is adriantrier-beanick.com. And the website is also in the episode notes so that you can learn how to spell my name. <laughs> I am also on Instagram at at TV. That is at D-R period, A-D-R-I-E-N-N-E-T-B. As always, thank you so much to my students for the encouragement to keep making these episodes, and I will see you next time.